the word Judas, as in Judas, followed by his supposed betrayal of Jesus, and, well, well, that's something you need to keep in mind. The words Judas. Now, I'm not alleging that the name Judas was the origin of Jew hatred in Christianity. It could simply be because the Romans always thought of the Jews as, you know, somewhat crazy, and the early Christians inherited it. But the big difference between pre-Christian Rome and post-Christian Rome was that, well, who betrayed Jesus? Could it be the Romans? Or were they just bystanders? Bystanders, even. It was the nasty, you know, what those fellows that represented by Judas. I'll get back to Jesus, Judas, and co. in a bit. First, anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitism is hostility to prejudice towards or discrimination against Jews. Very simple. Anti-Semitism can manifest itself in many ways. It can range from expressions of hatred or of discrimination against individual Jews to organized programs by mobs or police forces or even military attacks on entire Jewish communities. Intriguingly, the term did not come into common language or usage until the 19th century. It is also applied, interestingly, to previous anti-Jewish incidents. Pseudo-scientific theories concerning race, civilization, and some call progress had become quite widespread in Europe in the second half of the 19th century, especially as Prussian nationalistic historian Heinrich von I think Tilstaki, I don't know how you say that, did much to promote this wall of progressive racism. He coined the phrase, the Jews are our misfortune, which would later be widely used by the Nazis. But I don't want to blame just the Germans. Yes, Nazis were responsible for the Holocaust during the 1930s and 1940s. However, the origins of anti-Semitic views started not in 1930. But one day, one day after Christianity was so-called founded. Sure, the Romans, pre-Christian Romans, thought the Jews were clinically insane for worshipping their own and only so-called true God, whilst ignoring the pantheon of Roman, Greek and other deities in the empire. But shock horror, they also refused to worship the emperor as a living deity, a tradition the Emperor Augustus borrowed from the Egyptians after the Roman conquest of Egypt, ending the rule of the pharaohs. I want to distinguish between persecution of minorities to keep them in check versus going after a group for a theological or a theopolitical and ideological reason. I see anti-Semitism as a near-permanent crusade, not something the pre-Christian Romans indulged in. Though the general definition of anti-Semitism is hostility or prejudice against Jews, and according to Olaf Abrashke, has become an umbrella term for negative stereotypes about Jews, Helen Fine defines it as a persisting latent structure of hostile beliefs towards Jews as a collective manifested 
in individuals as attitudes and in culture as myth, ideology, folklore, and imagery, and also in actions, social or legal discrimination, political mobilization against Jews, and collective or state violence, which results in and or is designed to distance, displace, or destroy Jews as Jews. End quote. Elaborating on Fine's definition, Diaz Bering of the University of Cologne writes that to anti-Semites, Jews are not only partially but totally bad by nature. And precisely because of this bad nature, one, Jews have to be seen not as individuals but as a collective. Two, Jews remain essentially alien in the surrounding societies. And three, Jews bring disaster on their host societies or on the whole world. They are doing it secretly. Therefore, the anti-Semites feel obliged to unmask the conspiratorial nature of bad Jewish character, end quote. For Sonja Winberg, a distinct form of economic and religious anti-Judaism, anti-Semitism in its modern form shows conceptual innovation, a resort to science, to define or defend itself, new functional forms and organizational differences. It was anti-liberal, racialist, and nationalist. It promoted the myth that Jews conspired to Judaize the world. It served to consolidate social identity. It channeled dissatisfactions among victims of the capitalist system, and it was used as a conservative cultural code to fight emancipation and liberalism. Bernard Lewis defines anti-Semitism as a special case of prejudice, hatred, or persecution directed against people who are in some way different from the rest. According to Lewis, anti-Semitism is marked by two distinct features. Jews are judged according to a standard different from that applied to others, and that they are accused of cosmic evils. Thus, it is perfectly possible to hate and even to persecute Jews without necessarily being anti-Semitic, unless this hatred or persecution displays one of the two features specific to anti-Semitism. The early Zionist pioneer Leon Pinsker, a professional physician, preferred the clinical-sounding term judophobia to anti-Semitism. And I quote, Judophobia is a form of demonopathy. Didn't know that was a word, but anyway, demonopathy. With the distinction that the Jewish coast has become known to the whole race of mankind, not merely to certain races, judophobia is a psychic disorder. As a psychic disorder, it is hereditary, and as a disease transmitted for 2,000 years, it is incurable. Thus, have Judaism and Jew hatred passed through history for centuries as inseparable companions. Having analyzed judophobia as a hereditary form of demonopathy, peculiar to the human race and represented Jew hatred as based upon an inherited aberration of the human mind, we must draw the important conclusion that we must give up contending against these hostile impulses, just as we give up contending against every other inherited predisposition. End quote. The Roman Catholic historian Edward Flannery distinguished four varieties of anti-Semitism. Political and economic anti-Semitism, theological or religious anti-Semitism, nationalistic anti-Semitism, citing Voltaire and other Enlightenment thinkers who attacked Jews for supposedly having certain characteristics, 
such as greed and arrogance, and for observing customs, such as Ashurat and Shabbat, and finally, racial anti-Semitism, with its extreme fall resulting in the Holocaust by the Nazis. I agree with a Roy Eckhart, a pioneer in the field of Jewish-Christian relations, who asserts that the foundation of anti-Semitism and responsibility for the Holocaust lies ultimately in the New Testament. Eckhart insists, or insisted, that Christian repentance must include a re-examination of basic theological attitudes toward Jews and the New Testament in order to deal effectively with anti-Semitism. While the consensus among historians is that Nazism as a whole was either unrelated to Christianity or actively opposed to it. According to Rabbi Michael J. Cook, Professor of International and Early Christian Literature at the Hebrew Union College, there are 10 themes in the New Testament that have been a source of anti-Judaism and anti-Semitism. One, that the Jews are culpable for crucifying Jesus, as such they are guilty of killing a god. Two, the tribulations of the Jewish people throughout history constitute God's punishment of them killing Jesus. Three, Jesus originally came to preach only to the Jews, but when they rejected him, he abandoned them for Gentiles instead. Four, the children of Israel were God's original chosen people by virtue of an ancient covenant, but by rejecting Jesus, they fortified their closeness, and now, by virtue of a new covenant or testament, Christians have replaced the Jews as God's chosen people, the church having become the people of God. Five, the Jewish Bible, or the Old Testament, repeatedly portrays the opaqueness and stubbornness of Jewish people and their disloyalty to God. Six, the Jewish Bible contains many predictions of the coming of Jesus as the Messiah or Christ, yet the Jews are blind to the meaning of their own Bible. Seven, by the time of Jesus' ministry, Judaism had ceased to be a living faith. Eight, Judaism's essence is a restrictive and burdensome legalism. Nine, Christianity emphasizes love, while Judaism stands for justice and a God of wrath. And number 10, Judaism's oppressiveness reflects the disposition of Jesus' opponents called parhesis or predecessors of the rabbis, who in their teachings and behavior were technically hypocrites. That being said, there are some verses in the New Testament that describe Jews in a positive way too, attributing to them salvation or divine love. Both contemporary Jews and contemporary Christians need to re-examine the history of early Christianity and the transformation of Christianity from a Jewish sect consisting of followers of a Jewish Jesus to a separate religion often dependent on things like tolerance by Rome to understand how the story of Jesus came to be recast in an anti-Jewish form as the Gospels took their final form. Yes, early Christianity was nothing more than a random Jewish sect. Jesus, if he was real, was born a Jew and died a Jew. As Christianity grew throughout the Gentile world, the developing Christian tradition diverged from its Jewish and Jerusalem roots. Historians continue to debate the precise moment when early Christianity established itself as a new religion, apart and distinct from Judaism. It is difficult to trace the process by which the two separated, or to know exactly when this began. Jewish Christians continued to worship in synagogues together with contemporary Jews for centuries. Some scholars have found evidence of continuous interaction between Jewish Christians 
and rabbinic movements from the mid to late 2nd century CE to the 4th century CE. Philip S. Alexander characterizes the questions of when Christianity and Judaism parted company and went their separate ways as one of those deceptively simple questions which should be approached with great care. Both early Christianity and early rabbinic Judaism were far less orthodox and less theologically homogenous than they are today. Both religions were significantly influenced by Hellenistic religion and borrowed concepts from classical Hellenistic philosophies and the works of Greek-speaking Jewish authors of the end of the Second Temple period. The two schools of thought eventually firmed up their respective norms and doctrines, notably by diverging increasingly on key issues such as the status of purity laws, the validity of Judeo-Christian Messianic beliefs, and more importantly, the use of Koine, Greek, and Latin as languages replacing Biblical Hebrew. The split of the Christian-Jewish sect was probably a process, not a revolution. At first, these Jewish Christians, originally the central group in Christianity, were not declared unorthodox, but they were later excluded from the Jewish community and denounced. Some Jewish Christian groups were accused of having unorthodox beliefs, particularly in relation to their views of Christ and Gentile converts. It was at this time that to grow their ranks, this Jewish sect, Christianity, started accepting Gentiles to their converted ranks. And by Gentiles, just assume it means non-Jews, as in anyone. So Christian ranks were able to grow pretty quick because anyone could become a Christian. Growing anti-Jewish sentiment among early Christians is actually evidenced by the epistle of Barnabas, a late 1st, early 2nd century letter attributed to Barnabas, the companion of Paul, mentioned in the Act of the Apostles, although it could be by Barnabas of Alexandria, I'm not sure, or an anonymous author using the name Barnabas, all uncertain. In no other writing of that early time is the separation of the Gentile Christians from the observant Jews so clearly insisted upon. Christians, according to Barnabas, are the only true covenant people and the Jewish people are no longer in covenant with God. Circumcision and the entire Jewish sacrificial and ceremonial system have been abolished in favor of the new law of our Lord Jesus Christ. Barnabas claims that Jewish scriptures, rightly understood, serve as a foretelling of Christ and its laws often contain meaning. So who was Judas? Well, he was a disciple and one of the original 12 apostles of Jesus Christ. After he betrayed Christ, and then in guilt committed suicide before Christ's resurrection, at least one gospel says that, the apostles numbered 11. So between the extension of Jesus and the day of Pentecost, the remaining apostles elected a 12th apostle by casting lots, a traditional Israelite way of determining the will of God. The lot fell upon Matthias. The commissioning of the 12 apostles is an episode in the ministry of Jesus that appears in all three synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It relates the initial selection of the twelve apostles among the disciples of Jesus. According to Luke, one of those days Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. When the morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose twelve of them, whom he also designated apostles, Simon, who he named Peter, his brother, Andrew, 
James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James's son, Alphaeus, Simon, who was called the Zealot, Judas, son of James, and Judas, who became a traitor. According to Matthew, Jesus called his twelve disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. There are names of the twelve apostles. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and his brother Andrew, James' son, Zebedee, and his brother John, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, son of Apphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and, of course, Judas, who betrayed him. According to Mark, Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted. And they came to him. He appointed twelve, that they might be with him, and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. These are the twelve he appointed. Simon, whom he gave the name Peter, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas who betrayed him. The Gospels and these texts were assumed written by the then Christian Jews in the Roman Empire about roughly 50 to 60 years after the assumed mythical resurrection of Christ. At this point, everyone was Jewish except the sect that followed Jesus, and they were considered an odd occult in Judaism. Judas and Jude come from the Greek. The name is from Judah, Hebrew for God. 200 years prior, a chap named Judas Maccabee, or more likely Judah, led the Maccabean revolt against the Seleucid Empire around 160 BCE. The word really is Jude or Judah, not Judas. That sounds more like Jews does. Generally, though, right? Anyway, like who... Who was the chap that betrayed Jesus? Judas? Jew? When Constantine became Roman Emperor, a good 300 years after Christ, he set into motion the legalization of Christianity in the empire and then the subsequent broad adoption, including the narrative or some reconciliation of how it evolved in the empire over the 300 years. Yes, including somehow justifying or brushing over the persecutions, the crucifixions, and non-adoptions for all these years. My view is that as time progressed, Judas increasingly became a villain in the theological narrative. The name Judas clearly did not help Jews as a minority in Christian Europe at all, and the slow but eventual attempt by the Romans to distance themselves from their own crucifixion of Jesus and subsequent persecution required a new villain, one to distract from what Rome did, a scapegoat, enter the Jews. After all, who betrayed Jesus? The Gospels of Matthew, Mark and Luke are referred to as the Synoptic Gospels because they include many of the same stories, often in a similar sequence and in similar or sometimes identical wording. They stand in contrast to John, whose content is largely distinct. However, there was one other gospel, the gospel of Judas. The gospel of Judas is a non-canonical 
Gnostic gospel. The content consists of conversations between Jesus and Judas. Given that it includes late 2nd century theology, it is widely thought to have been composed in the 2nd century by Gnostic Christians rather than the historic Judas himself. Gnosticism, spelt with a G, so G-N-O-S-T-I-C, Gnostic, is a collection of religious ideas and systems that originated in the 1st century AD among Jewish and early Christian sects. These various groups emphasized personal spiritual knowledge above the orthodox teachings, traditions, and authority of traditional religious institutions. Viewing material existence as flawed or evil, Gnostics' cosmology generally presents a distinction between a supreme hidden god and a monolithic lesser divinity. Gnostic, Gnostic writings flourished among certain Christian groups in the Mediterranean world until about the 2nd century when the fathers of the early church denounced them as heresy. Efforts to destroy these texts proved largely successful, resulting in the survival of very little writing by Gnostic theologians. One of those texts seemed like it could have been the Gospel of Judas. The only copy of it known to exist is a Coptic language text that has been carbon dated to 280 AD, plus or minus 60 years. It has been suggested that the text derives from an earlier manuscript in the Greek language, an English translation was first published in the year 2006. The Gospel of Judas portrays Judas's actions as done in obedience to instructions given to him by Jesus. It asserts that other disciples had not learned the true Gospel, which Jesus taught only to Judas, the sole follower belonging to the holy generation among the disciples. The Gospel contains ideas which contradicted the doctrine of the early church. The author says that God is essentially a luminous cloud of light who exists in an imperishable realm. At the beginning of time, God created a group of angels and lower gods. Twelve angels were willed to come into being, to rule over the chaos and the underworld. The angels of creation were tasked with creating a physical body for Adam, which became known as the first man, Adam. Gradually, humanity began to forget its divine origins, and some of Adam's descendants, Abel, became embroiled in the world's first murder. Many humans came to think that the imperfect physical universe was the totality of creation, losing their knowledge of God and the imperishable realm. Jesus was sent as the son of the true God, not of one of the lesser gods. His mission was to show that salvation lies in connecting with the God within the man, through embracing internal God, the man can then return to the imperishable realm. Eleven of the disciples Jesus chose to spread his message misunderstood the central tenets of his teachings. They were obsessed with the physical world of the senses. The author says that they continued to practice religious animal sacrifice, which pleased the lower gods but did not help to foster a connection with the true God. In contrast, Jesus is able to teach Judas the true meaning of his life, ministry, and death. Mankind can be divided into, divided into two races or groups. Those who are furnished with the immortal soul, like Judas, can come to know the God within and enter the imperishable realm when they die. Those who belong to the same generation or, or of the other eleven disciples cannot enter the realm of God and will die both spiritually and physically at the end of their lives. As practices that are intertwined with the physical world, animal sacrifice and a communion ceremony involving cannibalism 
are condemned as abhorrent. The other Gospels say that Jesus had to die in order to atone for the sins of humanity. The author of Judas, however, expresses the view that this sort of justice is just the lower gods and angels. The true God is gracious and thus does not demand any sacrifice. So maybe if Judas was not portrayed as the bad guy, maybe, just maybe, 2,022 years of anti-Semitism may also have been averted. Remember that even during World War II, the powers that fought the Nazis were somewhat nasty too. The British and French had empires, the USSR had gulags, and the US had racial segregation and internment camps for Japanese Americans. No one wanted to save the Jews. In my view, that was the byproduct of containing Japan and Germany, especially Germany. And all through Christian history, Jews have been treated as second-class citizens and often beaten or forced from property. Judo-Christian traditions is an invention. It's all Christian and Jewish traditions because the Christians were a rebel Jewish sect who went on to create the biggest theological belief in the world. Or what if the Gospel of Judas was the actual Gospel? Then would all of this not have happened? Would we not have had the persecution of Jews, witch hunting, and even the Crusades? Would the Christians have been tamer than they are or were back then? Who knows? But all you do need to know is that the Jews were persecuted. You, of course, have been listening to the Alternative History Podcast. Thank you for your time. Oh, and please like, subscribe, and recommend the pod if you are enjoying the content. Thank you so very much. Thank you.